Turn with me in your Bibles to Lamentations chapter 5. We're continuing our verse-by-verse exposition of this wonderful little book tucked away amidst all the major prophets, the book of Lamentations. This morning, we're going to hone in on Lamentations chapter 5, verses 1 through 18. And I've titled this morning's message, Sin's Disgrace. You see, that's what we find in this closing chapter of the book of Lamentations. Really, this closing chapter of the book of Lamentations is a somewhat bleak and very blunt reminder of our sin. Throughout the whole book of Lamentations, we've talked about how each chapter is a poem, and each chapter and each poem follows an, an acrostic format. That is, it uses the letters of the Hebrew alphabet to form a a very thorough and beautiful poem. Well, chapter 5 deviates from that format. It is not an acrostic. It's not uh, uh, even as thorough as the other uh, uh, chapters in this book. What it is, is a blunt reminder of our sin. That's what we find here. Remember, the whole book of Lamentations is structured in such a way that the message of chapter 5 is going to correlate and match the message from chapter 1. And if you remember, it's, it's been, our, our sound guys reminded me, it's like been 20-something sermons in the book of Lamentations. I don't know how that happened, but the Lord's blessed it, I hope. Uh, but uh, when we cha- uh, studied chapter 1 way back when, we saw this warning of the danger of sin. And so to close out the book, the prophet brings us back to that warning of the consequences of sin, the disaster of sin, and closes the book out really with this blunt warning to the people. You might put it this way, if chapter 1 reminds us of the danger of sin, then chapter 5 adds a special emphasis on the disgrace that comes with sin. So look with me at these verses. I'll go ahead and read for you chapter 5, verses 1 through 18. Remember, O Lord, what has befallen us. Look and see our disgrace. Our inheritance has been turned over to strangers, our homes to foreigners. We have become orphans, fatherless. Our mothers are like widows. We must pay for the water we drink. The wood we get must be bought. Our pursuers are at our necks. We are weary. We are given no rest. We have given the hand to Egypt and to Assyria to get bread enough. Our fathers sinned and are no more, and we bear their iniquities. Slaves rule over us. There is none to deliver us from their hand. We get our bread at the peril of our lives because of the sword in the wilderness. Our skin is hot as an oven with the burning heat of famine. Women are raped in Zion, young women in the towns of Judah. Princes are hung up by their hands. No respect is shown to the elders. Young men are compelled to grind at the mill and boys stagger under loads of wood. The old men have left the city gate, the young men their music. The joy of our hearts has ceased. 
Our dancing has been turned to mourning. The crown has fallen from our head. Woe to us, for we have sinned. For this, our heart has become sick. For these things, our eyes have grown dim. For Mount Zion, which lies desolate, jackals prowl over it. In this blunt section of Scripture, we're reminded that sin leads to disgrace. In fact, the Bible teaches that there is nothing more disgraceful in this world than the sin that dwells within you. That's a pretty sobering reality, isn't it? I mean, think about the shameful things that are going on in this world right now that you look at that and say, that's just shameful. It is shameful, but it's just a manifestation uh, of the disgrace and shamefulness of the sin that dwells in all of our hearts. Sin is an egregious violation of our responsibility and duty to God. In fact, historically, the church has often defined sin in this way, saying that sin is, and excuse the old language, but it's a helpful old statement, Sin is any want of conformity to or transgression against God's law. That's what sin is. It's when you don't live up to God's standards or you actively violate God's standards. That's sin. Or maybe to put it more simply in the words of 1 John, sin is lawlessness. It's tacit, complicit rebellion against God's revealed will. Now think about that for a second. If sin is lawlessness, uh, what does that mean about sin? Well, if the law of God, that is the commands of Scripture, what, what God demands from His creatures, if law in that sense is a reflection of God's character, that means that sin is a violation of the very character of God. Or maybe to put it more bluntly, sin is a violation of the greatest reality in the whole universe, the character of God. And in this way, that's why sin is diametrically opposed to and separated from the glory of God. If God's glory is the greatest reality, then sin is separated from that completely, and it's the most shameful reality. It's disgraceful. And it's important to keep this in mind because we're inundated constantly with influence, influences that want to weaken our view of the wickedness of sin. All around us, we're, we're, we're flooded with influences that want to normalize sin. Satan works to hide sin by his huddle, uh, subtle lies and deceptive tactics. The world glorifies sin, uh, advertising it as freedom and fulfillment and fun. You ever noticed that marketing before? And by the way, in conjunction with these external temptations within us, we have our own lusts that always is battling to justify sin and rationalize it because we want to gratify our lusts. And ultimately, all of these efforts, every single effort to suppress the truth and, and normalize sin and make it seem like it's really not that bad, every effort in this manner is really just a desire to gain approval for sin in a Romans 1 kind of way. 
I want to be able to sin, and I don't want to have a guilty conscience about it. You ever wonder why? Why does the world want to shut the church up so much? Why don't they just do their thing and sin? I mean, we're not persecuting them. Why do they want to silence our voice with the truth of God? If they don't believe what we say, if they don't believe in God, if they don't believe in the law of God, then why don't they just write us off as a bunch of kooks? Just ignore us. Leave us alone. Well, the answer is God has implanted within them a conscience, and their conscience is screaming out within them. They know that there is a God. They know that they are living a life opposed to that God, and they're doing everything that they can to suppress the truth and quiet their conscience so that they can live in sin and have a quiet conscience at the same time. That's what all these influences are really about. And in our own battles with sin, we must not let ourselves get caught up in that suppression of the truth. We must recognize the insidious and disgusting nature of sin. There is nothing about sin that is worth approving. There's nothing innocent about sin. Every act of sin is an act of cosmic treason against the creator of the universe. There's nothing excusable about sin. The scriptures say that every sinner will stand before God without excuse. Those lame excuses that you use to justify sin in your own mind, that's not going to pass muster with a perfect, omniscient God, is it? Furthermore, we can say that there's nothing glorious about sin. Sometimes it really bothers me. I, I, I love hearing the testimony of the saints, but sometimes I'll, I'll hear people paraded up to give their testimony about how God saved them out of a life of horrible sin. And, and, and sometimes you hear some immature believers, I hope they're believers, get up and talk about, boy, I was involved in this sin and this sin and this sin, and it was so great. And they're talking about it like it was a good thing. But now God saved me, so I've moved on to another phase of life. It's not anything to glory in. Does it feel good to gratify the desires of the flesh? Yeah, for a moment. But from God's perspective, and in, which means in reality, is there anything glorious or worth glorifying in sin? Absolutely not. Sin falls short of the glory of God. In fact, that's what we see on display in this passage. We're familiar with Romans uh, chapter 3, verse 23. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Well, Lamentations chapter 5 is kind of a concrete living example of what that looks like. Lamentations 5 confronts us with the disgraceful nature of sin. There's nothing pleasing about sin before God. And ultimately, sin will strip you uh, uh, of any remaining vestiges of the image of God and the glory of God in your life. Now, this is not always the most uplifting uh, message to think about, is it? In fact, often, you know, we hear, well, you gotta make, we got to make sinners feel comfortable so they'll come to church. Well, if they're comfortable at church, just like they're comfortable in the world, then why don't we just let them stay in the world anyway? Or as believers, if, if we don't want to be convicted by sin, then that just means we don't want to deal with sin. That's the issue. I want to know 
what God thinks about my sin so that when I'm battling it, I'm armed with the truth of God in that battle. That's what I want to know. And so as hard as it is to think through these things in our own life and in our own ministry, Lamentations chapter 5 confronts us with these realities because we need to know it. I mean, right in verse 1, the tone is set when the prophet calls out to the Lord to look on us, look what has befallen us, look at these consequences we're dealing with, look and see our disgrace. That sets the tone for the entire rest of the chapter. Sin brought them disgrace. It's, it's, the word here means shame, reproach, dishonor, scandal. And this, by the way, is always where sin leads. If, if you flirt with sin and fall into sin, chapter 1 reminded us how dangerous that is, and now chapter 5 is reminding us from God's perspective how disgraceful that is. And that's what we're going to see this morning. Specifically, these 18 verses in Lamentations chapter 5 identify three areas in which we find the disgrace of sin. Three areas in which we find the disgrace of sin in our world. And we find the first area or sphere affected by the disgrace of sin in verses 1 through 10. Here we see what we might call the universal disgrace of sin. The universal disgrace of sin. That is to say, every area of life in this world is uh, impacted by sin's disgrace. It, it universally leads to shame in this world. The disgrace of sin is not limited to religious aspects of life. Sometimes individuals will engage in certain sinful practices during the week and feel absolutely no guilt, absolutely no shame for it. But then they come to church and they feel embarrassed about it at church as if, well, yeah, it's kind of embarrassing, it's kind of shameful, I kind of feel guilty about it when I'm at church. But when I'm doing it, I feel absolutely no disgrace, no conviction, no shame about it at all. Well, what these verses remind us of is that there's no division there. There's no bifurcation. Sin falls short of God's glory everywhere that it exists. In fact, notice the universal impact of sin's disgrace on Israel in these verses. Verse 2 describes disgrace at a national level. It says, our inheritance has been turned over to strangers, our homes to foreigners. In other words, sin affected the entire nation. In fact, it robbed the nation of its own independence. God had given the people the land as a perpetual inheritance to receive the land and then pass it down to the following generations. What happened, though? They lost that inheritance. And as a result, they lost their home. And the loss of their homeland meant the loss of the nation to exile. There was, a, there was a national disgrace. And it wasn't just limited to the, to the national level. It also affected even individual families. Look at verse 3. We have become orphans, fatherless. Our mothers are like widows. In, in other words, uh, things were so bad as a result of where sin had led them that it was more common for families not to have fathers, not to have parents, than it was for them to have a, a normal family unit in their household. And this is, by the way, a judgment from the Lord. 
God designed the family unit as a means of grace to help restrain sin in this world, to help protect children in this world, and to be fruitful to fill the world. And now, with Israel, because of their sin and the breakdown of the family, none of those things were going to happen. Men and fathers died in battle. Parents were carried off into exile. Children were orphaned. The family had been Family units had been decimated in the whole culture. Notice also verse 4, the disgrace of sin economically. In other words, sin had an impact even on the economy of the people. Verse 4 says, we must pay for the water we drink. The wood we get must be bought. Now, when I read that, I kind of thought, well, yeah, I got to do the same thing. I pay for my water. I pay for the wood if I want to light a fire in a fireplace. But the point here is they used to own the land that had the water on it. They used to own the land that had the wood on it. It used to be theirs. Now, it no longer belonged to them. The, The Babylonians had taken control of every national resource, which was economically crippling to the people of Judah. And by the way, the, the, the sin of a culture will ultimately affect the economy of a culture. We tend to, in our modern world, try to divide those things off, but historically even, that hasn't been true. Historically, everywhere a Christian worldview has predominated, there's been a positive economic impact. Now, to be clear, I'm not preaching all of a sudden a prosperity gospel. I'm not preaching health and wealth that if you do these things, the Lord will bless you with all kinds of riches. What I'm saying is when you have a culture that generally accepts biblical principles, biblical standards, a biblical work ethic, you're going to have more stability, you're going to have harder workers, and you're going to have a more prosperous economy. That's proven out over history. God's standards lead to productivity and obedience, which results in stability, which a healthy economy needs. In fact, Western civilization was built on what's been called a Puritan work ethic that was predicated on personal holiness, personal responsibility, and personal generosity, all of which are biblical principles. So again, this isn't the prosperity gospel. It's the book of Proverbs. It's biblical wisdom. And it doesn't always play out like that in uh, individuals' lives. Sometimes the righteous who live a righteous life, just the Lord gives them just enough to get by and that's it. I'm not saying this is a way to get rich, but the prudence, faithfulness, and wisdom that's required by God from his people, when, when that's the dominant uh, uh, virtue of a culture, then that culture is going to be more economically stable than when the people are given over to their own sins, their own desires, their own lust, and they're untethered from God's standards. That's what happened to the people of Israel. They were in economic disgrace in large part because of their sin. And, and in addition to the economic disgrace, there is even a military disgrace that we can see in verse 5. Verse 5 says, our pursuers are at our necks. Literally, our pursuers had become a yoke around our necks. We were weary. We were given no rest. In other words, they couldn't defend themselves. What happened to their military? It was completely defeated. 
and the rest that had been associated with the land as a result of the covenant promises, it was taken away, so there was no rest for the people. The nation couldn't defend itself, and so they bore the yoke of slavery before their Babylonian uh, captors. And their problem in all of this, it wasn't primarily foreign policy or military readiness. They had a well-thought-out foreign policy. In fact, it was too well-thought-out. We saw it last week. That was one of their idols. And uh, they had a pretty developed military strategy as well. In fact, that was a little overdeveloped. It was an idol for them as well. They were trusting in chariots and horses, not in the Lord their God. So the problem wasn't foreign policy or military. It was their sin. In fact, in chapter 1, verse 14, it says, My transgressions were bound into a yoke. Now, wait a minute. What's the yoke? Is the yoke the Babylonians or is the yoke their sin and transgression? And the answer is yes. The answer is yes. Because of their sins, God used the Babylonians to punish the people. And along with the, the, this punishment, this defeat of their military came what we might call in verse 6 an international disgrace. The once glorified nation was humiliated. Verse 6 says, We have given the hand to Egypt and to Assyria to get bread enough. They were going with their hand out to get a handout from their sworn enemies. By the way, there's a theme, just as an aside, there's a theme you often see in the Old Testament of God's people trying to run to Egypt instead of running to God. I think it's interesting, Abraham took Hagar, his wife's Egyptian handmaid, that didn't go well. The people later on in their history, they went to Egypt to get grain and the Lord used that to provide for them. But ultimately, they became so reliant on Egypt that they stayed there and became what? Slaves. They get out in the wilderness and the Lord's providing, but they didn't like the way He was providing. So what do they keep saying over and over again? If we could just go back and be slaves in Egypt. <laughs> Give me a break. Now, now leading up to the, the Babylonian defeat, what did they say? If we could just get Egypt on our side, Egypt would protect us. By the way, the Babylonians beat, destroyed, defeated the Egyptians as well. But it was never helpful to them. But now, the, the Assyrians, the Egyptians, they're going to anybody that they can. They had to beg for food. And, and it wasn't just this particular instance, this particular uh, uh, generation that was disgraced by sin. The disgrace of sin, it, it, it goes beyond generational boundaries. Notice it says in verse 7, Our fathers sinned and are no more, and we bear their iniquities. In other words, past generations had died in their sins, and that didn't work for them, but we keep on going in their same sins. The point is that, that these sinful practices and the consequences for the sin, it was passed down from generation to generation. The consequences and the legacy of sin just continued to be passed down. By the way, again, as an aside, parents, especially you fathers, this should be a sobering warning to you. 
you are passing on a, a legacy of patterns and habits to your children. You do not want your children to have to overcome the sinful patterns you taught them. You want to uh, teach them faithful patterns of life that, look, ultimately the Lord's got to save them. But you don't, want to have, you, want, you don't want the Lord to have to save them despite you. You want the Lord to use you to save them and lead them in a righteous life. And if you think your kids aren't watching, you're kidding yourself. I mean, I, I can't tell you how many times I saw, especially previous ministry as a youth pastor. I, you, you see the parents who come to church once a month, their kids, ultimately, when they get old enough to be independent, they'll come once a year. You're teaching your children patterns of life. And those patterns are either going to be selfish and sinful patterns or they're going to be patterns oriented with, by the means of grace and the pursuit of righteousness. And we've only got these kids so long. And this should be a sobering warning to us that the disgrace of sin, look, our children will be responsible for their own sin. So, so children, you can't grow up one day and blame mom and dad for your sin. You're going to have to answer for your sins before God on your own, which is why you need to believe in Jesus. But parents, we can pass on a legacy of patterned sin that will be detrimental to the spiritual life of our children. That's what happened here. In addition to this pattern generational disgrace of sin, there was even a political disgrace as a result of sin. Which, by the way, that one's not very hard for us to imagine, is it? But verse 8 said, Slaves rule over us. There's none to deliver us from their hand. In other words, the people who should have been serving Israel were now ruling over them. Which is an awful thing according to Proverbs chapter 30. The point here is that they were at the bottom of the barrel and there was no one that they could look to for help to pull them out of it. They were given shameful leaders to match their shameful patterns of sin. And, and along the way, they couldn't even provide for themselves anymore because of sin. Again, this should not be surprising for us. We, we've all known and tried to minister to friends and family members who have gone so far into their sins, uh, whatever those sins might be, they've gone so far into their sins that all of a sudden they can't provide for themselves anymore and, and they're looking to us to try to help them out. And we're looking at their lives saying, well, this is the result of sinful choices you've made. Verse 9 it says, we get our bread at the peril of our lives because of the sword in the wilderness. Now, the, the phrase here about the sword in the wilderness is kind of vague. It may very well have been, but once the city fell, you, you, you lost the security of a centralized government. So if you ventured out to try and find food or go beg food from some other Gentile nation, when you came back with that food, it was likely that these bands of marauders would come through and just steal it from you. That's probably what it's talking about here. But, but whatever the specifics of the danger is, the point is the food that they couldn't afford, that they had to beg for, that they had to pay their last pennies for, they had to go and get it and bring it back at the peril of their own life. They couldn't provide for themselves sufficiently. 
And along with that, there was even a physical disgrace that went with their sin. Verse 10 says, our skin is hot as an oven. And what this is describing is the, the, the shriveling up of skin that can often take place with starvation and malnutrition. It says, it goes on to say, with the burning heat of famine. What does the burning heat of famine refer to? Well, the burning heat, it's talking about raging hunger. What, what, is, what does fire do? It consumes. It consumes. It's a picture of hunger. And the hunger was just raging, but there was nothing to eat. It's raging hunger pains. I mean, I know sometimes if I go a little bit long on Sunday and start push that 12 o'clock hour, you start to feel the beginnings of those raging hunger pains, right? Although since the time changed this week, I don't have to worry about that. Your stomachs are, are still uh, uh, an hour off, which means I've got an extra hour before those hunger pains start to take over. So I know I've got a little leeway here. What's going on in here? What's going on with all this? The point is, every area of life was affected by sin. That's the point. Every area of life and culture, when it is immersed in sin, it leads to disgrace. And Jerusalem learned this lesson the hard way. Once they went down the path of sin, there was no longer any protection for them. Everything that happened to Jerusalem when the Babylonians destroyed it was the result of sin. Which, by the way, God warned them of in Deuteronomy 27. Everything, even, even down to, to the, the cannibalism that we read about earlier in the book, everything is warned of in Deuteronomy 27. If you follow the path of sin, this is what's going to happen. Just like God warned Adam and Eve in the garden, Adam in the garden, in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. There was a warning there. The people were warned, but they ignored those warnings. And as a result, in every area of life, both as a society and as the individuals that made up that society, there was no protection for them. The protection of righteousness was forfeited for the peril of sin. It was universal disgrace. Now that leads us to a second area of disgrace that this chapter highlights for us in verses 11 through 14. Here we see what we might call the personal disgrace of sin. The personal disgrace of sin. So, in addition to affecting every area of life, the disgrace of sin affects every person in the world. Every person. No, no one can escape the effects of sin. Just as no area of life can escape the ramifications of sin, so too there is no individual who can avoid the consequences of sin. And notice how in verses 11 through 14, how the prophet categorically describes every segment of the population in Jerusalem and how it was affected by sin. For instance, in verse 11, you have the women who experience the disgrace of sin in an eye-opening and very blunt way. It says women are raped in Zion, young women in the towns of Judah. Zion was the holy city. That was where you went to worship Yahweh. Now it was a place of unspeakable atrocities where women, women were suffering. 
The women were exploited. They were unprotected, not just in the city, but throughout the entire region. And by the way, this kind of thing is the sign of a society that is given over to sin. You know, with, with all the cultural things going on, us, uh, going on around us today, there are principles here that are important for us to recognize. Namely, the protection of righteousness. If we truly want to protect women and honor women, then we have to go about it by pursuing righteousness through the Scriptures. The, the, the protection of women and the, the honoring of women in a society is not going to come from an industry that entertains people by demeaning women. It's not going to happen. It's not going to happen through worldly means. The further we go into sin, the more these things take place. It's the pursuit of righteousness that protects us from this disgrace. And it's not just the women referred to here. Verse 12 goes on and highlights the rulers. What happened to the ruling class? Well, the princes, that's the ruling class, are hung by their hands. What's this referring to? Well, it's a bit vague, but in all likelihood, it refers to one of three things, and none of them are good. It could be a way of referring to death by impalement. I'll let you imagine the visual there. It could also be a way of describing uh, how these rulers were publicly displayed after they were killed as an example to everybody. If you go against us, here's what's going to happen to you. Or, and uh, Calvin suggests that it should be instead of uh, they're hung by their own hands, in other words, they, they were hanging there by their hands, it's that they hung themselves with their own hands, referring to suicide. I think the way it's phrased here is, is, is vague enough that any of those could be true, but the point is the same with all of them, isn't it? But whatever the interpretation, it indicates the shameful death of these wicked, hypocritical leaders. God exposed them, and then the disgrace of sin finally caught up to them. And the same is true for the elders. If the princes were the ruling class of kind of the whole nation, then each community would have its own elders who would rule over the people and go to the gates and, and, and make judgments and lead their community. It was a position of respect within the community, but now there's no respect. No respect for them whatsoever. The rulers were disregarded. By the way, this too is another sign of a society that is given over to sin when there's no respect for authority. Whatever those authority figures might be, no matter how sinful those authority figures might be, the Scriptures make it clear that God has providentially put them there, which means we have a responsibility to honor them as far as we can, which should inform your thinking before you hit share the next time on that funny cartoon on Facebook or whatever? I mean, you better be careful because however you talk about the rulers that God has put over you, whether it's the governmental rulers or the federal government, local government, police officers, uh, at your work, your bosses at work, whether it's the authority structure that God has put in place at this church, However you speak about those authorities that God has put in your life, children, your parents, you need to recognize that what you are speaking against is the circumstances that God has put in your life, the authority figures that God has put in your life. 
Does that mean you have to agree with them? No. But we have clear commands from Scripture that we have a responsibility to show them respect. I'm always amazed. How's this for getting off topic? I'm always amazed at how easy it is for us to speak boldly and at times rudely about our political persuasions. But when it gets time to tell people about Jesus, all of a sudden we turn into little mice. I don't understand it. I don't understand why the church would give away all the capital that we could have to use to share the gospel in order to get in political arguments. And I love to argue politics as much as the next guy. But if somebody disagrees with me in politics and they're not a believer, then my priority is to give them the gospel. Look, we can disagree about politics, and I'm happy to have a reason to debate with you, but I am not going to offend you in such a way that you're not going to listen to me about Jesus because I, I made fun of you about our political disagreements. All these things, we have to be showing signs of respect to the authority that God has put over them. No, no matter how uh, uh, unrespectable someone might be. Again, we don't have to agree with them. We don't have to agree with them. But, but how many opportunities to share the gospel? We think, of, we think of people who don't agree with us. In political terms, people who don't agree with us are the enemy. In spiritual terms, people who don't agree with us are the mission field. Why are we going to give away our opportunity to fulfill the Great Commission in order to win a political argument, which nobody ever wins political arguments anyway. Nobody's ever said, boy, I got on Facebook and I read that cartoon and it really changed the way I think about this issue. Doesn't happen. Doesn't happen. Here's a point. There was no respect for authority amongst the elders in this culture. It's a sign of a culture given over to sin. Notice also, the men didn't escape the disgrace of it. It says, young men are compelled to grind at the mill. These should have been the warriors. What are the warriors doing? They're doing the job of an ox. This is what an ox would do. Why were there no oxes? Because the Babylonians killed them all and ate them. So the young men, what are they doing? They're at the mill grinding. The, The boys, the future warriors of the nation, what are they doing? They're exhausted under loads of wood that they're carrying for the Babylonians. And just to make sure everybody is included on this, verse 14 includes all ages in this disgrace of sin. The old men have left the city gate. They're gone. The young, they've left their music. In other words, there was no age demographic left unaffected by the disgrace of sin. Everyone was affected. That's the point. Sin's shame, it's universal. It affects every area of life. Sin's shame is personal. No one is immune from the stain of sin. There's no demographic of people that can avoid the personal disgrace of sin. And if, if you think you're the exception to the rule, to put it mildly, you're wrong. Anybody, any, anybody listening to the prophet after the fall of Jerusalem would tell you that you're wrong. In fact, Numbers 32, 23 warns us, doesn't it? 
It warns us about the disgrace of sin, the shame of sin. And then it, it, it closes Numbers 32, 23. Your sin will find you out. If he said, well, but it hasn't found me out yet. I don't, I don't see any of this disgrace. And I'm, I'm doing these secret sins. And, and I'm going to church at the same time and not affecting me. Your sin will find you out. If not in this life, then when you stand before the Lord, your hypocrisy cannot be hidden from God. Don't allow your temporal earthly comforts or the lust you have for gratification to distract you from the disgrace of sin. There's nothing profitable in sin. And this leads us to a third area where sin and its disgrace is seen. And we see this in verses 15 through 18. Here we see what we might call the spiritual disgrace of sin. The spiritual disgrace of sin. In addition to the perceptible and practical consequences of sin in this life, there are eternal and spiritual consequences to sin. If you pursue a life of unrestrained sin, it will be a disaster for your soul and it will be a disaster for your fellowship with God. This is a reality that we all must grapple with and this is a reality that we need in the forefront of our minds when we're battling sin. You never battle sin with something that you don't really like. It's always something that's like, man, it would be great if this worked out. Or it would be easier if I could just do it this way. Yeah. What effect is it going to have on your soul? What effect is it going to have on your walk with the Lord? See, these verses describe the disgraceful spiritual condition that was produced by sin in Judah. The, 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 the spiritual disgrace in Judah included spiritual despair. Verse 15, the joy of our hearts has ceased. Our dancing has been turned to mourning. In other words, you've got the joy in the heart, so you've got the internal inner man reality of joy, and then you've got dancing, which is an outward expression of joy. It was gone. In fact, they were so deep into despair, they couldn't even be hypocrites and express joy even though they didn't experience it. Sorrow completely eclipsed the, the disposition of joy and the expressions of joy in the life of the people. It's gone. By the way, this is the exact reversal of what happened when, when the temple was dedicated. In Psalm chapter 30, it says the people were overjoyed and they danced for joy and they praised God. Except the temple. They had the presence of God. They had fellowship with God. But now that that has been stripped away from them, the temple has been destroyed, and they're under the discipline of the Lord for their sin, what do they have left? Well, they have nothing physically. They have nothing personally. They have nothing nationally. And they have nothing spiritually. Friends, sin always leads to despair. Always. Always. You say it doesn't seem like it in the moment of temptation. It's not going to. Otherwise, it wouldn't be tempting. 
But you take God at His word next time you're tempted. And you remind yourself, sin never leads to joy. At least not in your inner man. There is no long-term joy in sin, only grief. Do not make the mistake of trading the joy of faithfulness and the joy of a clean conscience for the excitement of sinful gratification. Look, the more I dig into God's Word, the more I value being able to lay down my head at night with a clean conscience, knowing that I'm not perfect, and anywhere I see sin, I try to own it and confess it and deal with it, and I know that I'm going to go through the day and I'm going to sin, and I'm not even going to recognize it unless the Lord helps me see it. But as far as I can know, I've got a clean conscience before the Lord. There, there's, there's something wonderful and joyful about being able to lay your head on a pillow with a clean conscience. Don't trade that for the, the temporary and fading excitement of sin. When you walk with the Lord, joy is possible in every circumstance. But when you walk in sin, despair will always prevail. Always. It's part of spiritual disgrace of sin. So too are the spiritual curses that come as a result of sin. Verse 16 says, The crown has fallen from our head. Woe to us, for we have sinned. What's the crown here referring to? Well, if you're familiar with your Old Testament theology, the crown is referring to the Davidic covenant. Which is to say, it's referring to the promise God made to King David that one of his descendants would reign on the throne perpetually and that ultimately a son of David would rule over God's final kingdom. Well, the exile meant that that promise was not going to be fulfilled in this generation, was it? All the blessings that came with the Messiah King coming to reign over God's kingdom, the, the, the blessings that God's people should have been looking forward to, now they know we will not experience those blessings in this generation. Instead, we traded the blessings that God promised to us in His covenant for the curses that God warned us of in sin. This is, by the way, what always happens. Sin always leads to curses. It always robs you of spiritual blessings. Ephesians says that we have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places given to us in Christ Jesus. You say, well, why doesn't it feel like that sometimes? Well, I know the answer to that. It's not because God lied. It's not because God changed his mind. It's not because those blessings really aren't that important. I'll tell you why we don't experience these blessings in the way that we could it's because of our own lack of faith to see those blessings in our life and it's because of our sin that alienates us from those blessings the pursuit of sin will always hinder you from enjoying the blessings of god and i'm not saying if you do the right thing god makes your life easier i'm talking about the spiritual blessings that god promises to us like the fruit of the spirit Look, I'll, 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 I'll go through this life with no money if I can have love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control because against those things, there is no law. Those are the kind of blessings that I want. Those are the kind of blessings that God promises to all who will follow after Him. And those are the kind of blessings that we forfeit when we choose sin over righteousness. 
If you want to experience the spiritual blessings that God has promised to you in full, you must battle sin and pursue righteousness. That's all there is to it. That's all there is to it. There's so many blessings that God offers to us that we just don't take full use of because we aren't willing to kill sin to experience that blessing. Notice also, speaking of the spiritual disgrace in verse 17, that that sin leads to spiritual sickness. In other words, sin's not going to make your soul get better. Verse 17, for this our heart has become sick. For what? Whenever you see a four there, try and figure out, okay, what's what's it pointing back to? Well, the previous statement is, for we have sinned. Okay, we received the curse of God because we have sinned. And, and because we have sinned and we are under the curse of God, our heart has become sick. For these things, our eyes have grown dim. Sin always produces spiritual sickness. So what does that mean? Your soul doesn't really get sick. So what does it mean to have spiritual sickness? Well, among other things, it means that your appetite for the things of the Lord is going to decrease. When you're you're engaged in sin, you don't want to be studying the truth. You don't want to be around God's people. You don't want to hear the Word preached. Your appetite is diminished. Additionally, your capacity is diminished. If you've given your life over to sin, then, then your spiritual capacity to, to, to serve the Lord and grow in the Lord, man, you are diminishing your capacity. It's kind of like if you want to be a marathoner, an Olympic marathoner, then don't pick up smoking. You're going to need all the lung capacity you can get, right? Well, sin is going to decrease your spiritual capacity. It's also going to hinder your understanding of spiritual things. Notice how all these play out here. It says we have a sick heart because of these things. A sick heart is a heart that's not functioning properly. It's it's a heart that's not tuned into the things of the Lord. You know, we'll often sing in the great hymn, Tune My Heart to Sing Thy Grace. A sick heart is one that's not tuned to receive or sing of God's grace. In other words, it's a heart that's not loving God. It's a heart that's bound to the burdens of God's curses, not freed in the love of God in pursuit of holiness. That's what's going on here. Additionally, the, the eyes dim. Now we're going to see in a minute that the eyes dim and when they're looking towards Zion. Where was Zion? Zion was where the temple was. That's where God was. In other words, their eyes were dimmed in looking to God. Their eyes were incapacitated. Their eyes were unable to perceive or process the realities of God, the truth of God. In other words, they were blind to spiritual things. You want to make it harder on yourself to understand the truth of God than just plunge yourself into sin. You harden your hearts and blind your eyes and you're not going to have a capacity or an appetite or an understanding of any of these things. Sin always leads to defective hearts and dulled eyes. And just as physical uh, sickness will threaten your physical life, then spiritual sickness so too will threaten your spiritual life. If you make sin the pursuit of your life, you will not want spiritual truth and you will not understand spiritual truth. 
you'll be crushed under the burdens of God's curse and you'll have no way of accessing God's truth. Which leads to verse 18. Which is the ultimate sign of spiritual disgrace and that is separation from God. It says that their eyes dimmed have grown dim for Mount Zion, which lies desolate, jackals prowled over it. Mount Zion, that's where the temple was. That's where the special presence of the Lord was. That's where the people went to commune with God and worship God and hear from God. Now who's on Mount Zion? Jackals. Where's God? Not there. At least not in that special relational sense. Why? Their sin had separated them from Him. You see, at the root of sin's spiritual disgrace is the fact that it separates people from God who is the source of all grace, all blessing, and all life. Sin separates us from God. If you're here today and you're not a believer in Christ Jesus and you say to yourself, you know, God seems really far away from me. Can I just tell you, you don't know the half of it. If you haven't put your faith in Christ Jesus, there's a reason why God seems far away from you. And that's because you are separated from Him. You're separated from His goodness. You cannot have a relationship with Him because of your sin. That's why you need to believe in Christ Jesus. He's the only one who can bridge that separation to redeem you so that you can be made right with God. If you seem far from God and you're not a believer in Christ, it's because you are far from God. But if you're here today and you're a believer and you say, boy, I feel like I'm far off from God even as a believer. Well, believer who's in union with Christ and has the Spirit of Christ dwelling within you, if God seems far away from you, might I suggest it's not because God has gone anywhere? Might I suggest that it could very well be your lack of faith and your patterns of sin that are disrupting your fellowship with God? That's what sin will do. That's what sin will do. Sin will disrupt that fellowship with God. It will rob you of peace. It will rob you of assurance. It will rob you of all spiritual blessings. And here's why. Sin is disgraceful. Sin is absolutely wicked and it inevitably leads to universal, personal, and spiritual disgrace. That's why I said earlier that this passage is a concrete example of Romans 3.23. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Lamentations chapter 5 gives us a little glimpse at what that looks like. And even as we recognize the disgrace of sin, we say, well, what's the answer? What's the answer to sin's disgrace? Well, that's easy. The answer to sin's disgrace is God's grace offered to us in the person of Christ Jesus. You see, Romans 
3.23 says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And then verse 24 says, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. If you want to re- be redeemed out of sin, shame, and disgrace, you must come to Christ who died on the cross and was raised from the dead for the purpose of redemption. The answer to sin's disgrace is God's grace. And by the way, if we clearly see Romans 3.23 and Lamentations chapter 5, so too we see Romans 3.24. Do you remember how the prophet in Lamentations chapter 5 started out the entire chapter? He said, remember, O Lord. Remember. If you're somebody who's caught in sin's disgrace, you need to do exactly what the prophet did. You need to go back to the Lord and say, Lord, remember me. Pour out your grace on me. If you're an unbeliever, you need to do that for the first time. Call out to the Lord Jesus to remember you. Put your faith in Him. Entrust your life to Him. And if you're a believer and you're battling sin and losing, you need to go back to the Lord and say, remember me. You give me grace. You help me battle this. And then start fighting. And when a fight gets hard, pray. Run to the means of grace. Depend upon your brothers and sisters. Depend upon the church. Get in God's Word. But you keep going back to the Lord in prayer and you pour out your heart to Him and you say, you remember me and remember your promises to me as your child. That's what you do. And that's what you have to do because this passage reminds us sin is nothing to be toyed with. It is devastatingly dangerous and it is absolutely disgraceful. We pray with me. Lord, we thank you for these truths, even though we admit it is hard for us to hear these things and to consider these things. But we thank you that we have a grace that not only can match the disgrace of our sin, but a grace that can completely wash away the shame of sin. We thank you for that. We thank you that as we're confronted with the reality of sin, that we don't have to be tempted to strive harder in and of ourselves to earn your favor or in our own power by our own means fight our way out of sin. Lord, we are so thankful that your grace is sufficient to make us right with you, that Christ has earned your favor on our behalf. And we're so thankful that the grace that saves us continues to stay with us, to empower us in this fight with sin. Lord, it is hard, we confess to you, and we make it harder because of the lust of our own flesh. But we are so thankful for the provision that you have given to us. We're thankful even for the grace of your word today to warn us of our sin. And Lord, I pray specifically if there's anybody here today whose heart needs to be exposed to these truths and their heart needs to be exposed by these truths, I pray that mercifully and gently you would do so. Lord, we love you. You are good to us. And we praise your name for your glorious grace. And of course, We pray not in our own righteousness, but we pray in the name of Christ Jesus. Amen.